support in the military is something that's always very important to me. People wanted to ask me how my, my child wants to be a catcher. What do I tell them? And I said, catch every ball. And in life, isn't that the way it is? I spent two years in the service, and I was proud to be part of it. I wore that uniform with a pride and dignity, just like I wore the Dodger uniform with great character and love. The greatest name in the history of the Cleveland Indians franchise, Mr. Bob Feller. Today on the American Valor Podcast, we're excited to have Mr. Carl Erskine. Mr. Erskine was a pitcher for the Brooklyn Dodgers, and he had the opportunity to play with greats such as Tommy Lasorda, Jackie Robinson, and Pee Wee Reese. He was signed by Mr. Branch Rickey, who is most known for being the general manager of the Dodgers and signing Jackie Robinson. We talked to him today about his commitment to our country through his service in the Navy, as well as his extensive baseball career. Mr. Erskine, thank you for joining us today. Oh, hello there. Yes, thank you. What was it like growing up during the Depression, Carl? Yeah, I was born and raised uh, in a town of Anderson, Indiana. We're about 30 miles northeast of Indianapolis. Yeah, I grew up in a mixed neighborhood, uh, born in 1926. So my recollection of the Depression uh, came a little later when I was big enough to kind of remember things. But uh, it was... uh, tough times, I suppose. Uh, We never missed any meals. My dad and mother, hard workers, and uh, we had General Motors plants in my town that uh, uh, really got underway big time during World War II for material, war materials. But um, I had a good childhood, Um, was a healthy kid most of the time, and uh, I I remember uh, my dad had a good throwing arm. He played a little semi-pro baseball, and uh, my brothers, two older brothers, and I and my dad used to, summertime, it was a ritual to play catch, they said, at the side of the house uh, during uh, the summer months. And so that's where my first uh, experience with baseball, uh, we used to play a game called burnout, and they start uh, tossing back and forth nice and soft, and each toss got a little harder. And I was the youngest of the group, uh, my two brothers. And they used to pin me to an old barn we had in the back of the house. And uh, I'd try to throw as hard as they could. And uh, I kept reaching up higher and higher to throw harder and harder. And uh, I became an overhand pitcher straight over the top. And uh, that's the way I pitched during my uh, 12 seasons in the big leagues. Do you remember where you were during Pearl Harbor? I do, exactly. Uh, I had a buddy that lived uh, a block and a half from my house uh, and a couple other kids in the neighborhood. And uh, we were playing basketball in the back of his house. Uh, There was a barn in the back of his house and an alleyway and uh, a hoop on the back of the barn. We were, uh, Sunday afternoon, we were playing uh, basketball back there and somebody uh, told us that uh, they just bombed Pearl Harbor. Well, of course, we didn't know where Pearl Harbor was or had no idea the significance of what that bombing meant at the time. Uh, I think I was probably uh, 12 years old or so 
And uh, I know exactly where I was that day. I understand that you were drafted into the United States Navy a few years after that. What was your experience in the military like? Well, I graduated from high school in 1945. So the war in Europe had uh, pretty much been wrapped up, but this, the war in the South Pacific was still hot. And so I was drafted uh, at age 18 into the uh, United States Navy. Uh, I was sent to boot camp, and in those days, uh, it was a hurry-up uh, training. I was four weeks in boot camp. I think normal boot camp was 12 weeks. Uh, but during the war, uh, in a hurry-up time, uh, I had 12, I think uh, I think I had four weeks training in boot camp and was scheduled to go out on, on a small carrier. And as before we left, right at the end of my uh, boot training, um, the bombs were dropped in Japan, the, the Hiroshima and Nagasaki. And uh, my orders stopped, uh, halted, and they sent me to Boston Navy Yard. And um, so my military experience uh, was about two years, and it, I spent most of it in, uh, at the Boston Navy Yard. What are some of the things you learned during your time in the Navy? Well, you know what the military is all about is discipline, um, and you you learn quickly. Uh, you don't you don't question the orders you get. You only uh, try your best to do do the orders, no matter how bizarre they might seem. Uh, it's all a training to instill in you uh, discipline, and uh, so the military. For young guys who are a little wild in their makeup, the military has straightened out lots of young men uh, by giving them a good, hard lesson in uh, discipline. So the, the military is all about discipline. What was it like going from the military and the Navy and, you know, you couldn't play baseball for them because they said that they already had their max amount of picture, pitchers, but then you ended up going to play for the Dodgers. What was that transition like? Well, when um, well, I was in the Navy, I was uh, being scouted uh, from high school on and then in the Navy too, uh, but I couldn't find a place to play in the Navy. And um, when I tried to play for a Navy team in Boston, uh, they said, well, they had a lot of pitchers and uh, it was midsummer and uh, maybe they couldn't use me. <laughs> so they wouldn't let me pitch. And I don't know if you know the story or not. They they just issued a baseball card, and they had a story about this on the back of this uh, new issued baseball card, where the the guy that turned me down in the Navy, uh, two years later I'd been in uh, discharged in, in the minor leagues, and I was pitching one night in St. Louis. I beat the Cardinals, and uh, the next night I'm out on the field just loosening up. And this guy from the stands, uh, edge of the rail, he kept yelling at me. And we weren't supposed to fraternize, so I just ignored him. But he just kept yelling at me and yelling at me. So I finally walked over and I said, pal, son, what's on your mind? You, you look really excited. He said, I am excited. Uh, I'm the guy that told you in the Navy that you couldn't pitch. It's guys like me making decisions. I'm surprised we won the, won the war. <laughs> now I have a baseball card 
out with that story on the back. So you were part of a generation of baseball players and young men and women in America who served. So was that something that you felt like was a big part of, of your generation and the, the players that you were playing against in the major leagues? Yeah, you know, during the during that time, um, my experience in in the military, fortunately, uh, I was not in harm's way uh, in terms of the the real war, the hot war, uh, which was fortunate for me. But I'll tell you, there's a certain pride in uh, in being in the military. Uh, I'm a little reluctant this day in my life when people say to a crowd now. All the guys in the military, please stand up. You know, I stand up, and although I didn't participate uh, as my friend Bob Feller did, Bob was in the hot war for sure, but there's a sense of pride. And a guy called me one day and said he was doing a video, and he was recording a veteran's experience in the war. And I said, well, I didn't have any experience like that, so I wouldn't be very much of an interview. And he said, well, wait a minute, let me ask you a couple of questions. Uh, how'd you get in the Navy? I said, well, I was drafted. He said, so you got a letter from Uncle Sam, right? I said, yeah. Did you throw the letter away and say, I'm not doing that? I said, no, I didn't. But what did you do? I reported where I was supposed to. He said, did you know that you might be in harm's way? Well, I guess so, but uh, why would I do that? Uh, if if I was called to service, I had to do it. He said, you see, you you were able to fulfill what every American should do is go when you're called. And yet that's what you did. <laughs> so I said, well, if, that's, if that gives me any points, I guess I'll take them. Incredible. You mentioned your friendship with Mr. Feller. And Bob Feller is the namesake of the foundation that um, through that foundation, the Bob Feller Foundation, we are um, bringing this podcast to listeners. What was your relationship with Bob Feller like? When did you meet him? Well, Bob Feller and I were, of course, in two different leagues. So he's the American League. <clears throat> Me and the National, I didn't participate against him or um, even see him pitch very much. But an organization was born in 1954 called the Fellowship of Christian Athletes. And Bob Feller was one of the early participants along with me. Uh, and that's where I first uh, got acquainted with Bob. Uh, then we were together on several card shows uh, and uh, I got further acquainted. Counting him a good friend and he was a little older than me, but uh, I had great respect for two things about Bob Feller. <laughs> Of course, he, he was one of the great pitchers of all time. But he also, I mentioned discipline. Bob Feller had one of the most vigorous uh, routines to stay in shape of any pitcher I ever knew or, or heard about. Uh, he had a very disciplined life. And uh, I think that came strictly from the military. And... Uh, Bob Feller pitched three no-hitters. But what's more remarkable than that, he pitched 12 one-hitters. <laughs> Can you beat that? <laughs> <laughs> well, 
Well, so maybe maybe you maybe you could. Well, I did pitch two no hitters, but uh, I didn't I didn't pitch very many one hitters. Maybe one or two. <laughs> so in your career, as you just mentioned, you pitched two no hitters. You were World Series champion. And you're also an all-star in 1954. Is there any of those accolades that really stand out to you? Or is there what was maybe your greatest memory from playing baseball in the majors? Well, I think I was very fortunate uh, that uh, the Dodgers scouted me in high school. And then I had several other uh, teams scout me. And, but the Dodgers had invited me to come to Ebbets Field in Brooklyn and work out for a week. And right out of high school and before I was uh, inducted in the Navy. So uh, I always wanted to play for the Dodgers. And fortunately for me, uh, Branch Rickey signed me in 1946, right, just as I was discharged. And uh, I was fortunate to play with one of the all-time uh, great teams. Of course, their centerpiece was Jackie Robinson. And um, But my roommate was Duke Snyder. My catcher was Roy Campanella. Uh, my fellow uh, Hoosier teammate, Gil Hodges, was our first baseman. We were loaded with superstars and Hall of Famers. So I was always said I was forced to pitch for that team instead of against it. What was it like playing with Jackie Robinson? Well, I met Jackie uh, his second year in the big leagues. In 1947, he broke in uh, the majors. I was still in the minor league. In fact, uh, the spring of 1948, I was at Fort Worth, Texas, which was double A. It was an affiliate of the Dodgers. And the big team came to play us a preseason game at Fort Worth. And I pitched it that day against the big team. I didn't know anybody on it, but I knew the big names. Well, I pitched five innings that day and uh, shut out the Dodgers for five innings. When the game was over, uh, a voice said, where's Erskine? And uh, my teammates said, Carl, Carl. They pointed to Jackie Robinson, who had come across the field and called for me by name. And so I stepped out of the dugout and shook hands with Jackie. And he said to me, young man, I hit against you twice today. You're not going to be in this league very long. And sure enough, by midseason, I won 15 games at Fort Worth, and I was called to the Dodgers. And uh, the first guy in my locker was Jackie. He said, I told you you couldn't miss. And so he and I struck up a, a strong friendship, and I was teammates of Jackie for nine seasons most exciting player probably that ever played the game. Uh, I used to hear about Ty Cobb and his throwing base running. I'm telling you, Jackie Robinson would thrill the crowd every day of the world and a great competitor. And he broke the color barrier at a time when America was truly divided by segregation. So what Jackie did Today is Martin Luther King Day. And Martin Luther King came along a decade after Jackie. But Martin Luther King always gave Jackie credit for getting the door open and starting the momentum that made his own efforts for civil rights 
so successful. He gave Jackie full credit for that. That's incredible. Do you remember, did did you feel like you were able to appreciate being a part of history and seeing that play out at the time? Well, actually, you know, when you're going through history, you don't realize you're a part of it. Uh, We were all battling for our jobs. We were on one-year contracts and uh, trying to make it and stick at the big leagues. But we knew Jackie was faced a huge challenge. And uh, there was a lot of support on the team for Jackie. Uh, There was never any bickering or clubhouse uh, talk behind his back or anything. Uh, Jackie was so part of winning. Um, The Dodgers were always kind of second uh, division teams for years. But when Jackie came, I think the Dodgers won six National League championships and, of course, the World Series in 1955. So Jackie was a spark plug of, of those teams in the 50s. After your playing career, um, you went on to coach for Anderson College. Was there a coach uh, that you took or that you feel like influenced your coaching style? Absolutely. Uh, I played for four uh, managers. Um, early on, Leo DeRocher, and then uh, after that uh, came uh, Charlie Dressen, and finally uh, Walter Alston. All different personalities. Uh, they all came at their coaching in a different manner, and they reflected their own personality. But I learned a lot from each one. Uh, I liked Charlie Dressen. He was a he was a chance taker, but he was smart. And Walt Olson was a solid, quiet. Uh, he didn't yell. He didn't throw the stools in the clubhouse. He didn't cuss a lot. Uh, I admired him because he was tough but in a quiet way. So I think I I was more impressed with his style of, of managing, and I think my coaching career for 12 seasons at Anderson College, um, some of those young men I coach still call me and still come back to see me. And the one thing they always say was, Coach, I never saw you lose your temper. And I always told them, when they start getting on the other team, hey, hey, let's get on each other. Wake us up. We don't need to wake the, the other team up. <laughs> so I kind of coached the way I learned from Walt Alston. We had the pleasure of talking to another Dodgers legend, uh, Tommy Lasorda, earlier during our podcast uh, careers, you could say. Do you have any stories of Mr. Lasorda? I played with Tommy in the minor leagues, and uh, – we were good friends. Tommy was a left-hand pitcher at AAA, and he still probably has records in the International League. But Tommy was a bulldog. He was a fighter and uh, a competitor, real hard-nosed competitor. But somehow he made it and set some records at AAA, but he never quite made it as a pitcher in the big leagues. He had a couple of shots, and he didn't quite cut it. But then he went to the minor leagues and became a manager. And Tommy was, was a motivator. He could, he could make an ordinary ball player think, he'd, uh, think he was a Hall of Famer. I mean, he was a motivator. And uh, Tommy 
one of the stories Tommy tells about Mr. Ricky, Branch Ricky was an outstanding Christian man, but he was his reputation was that he was tight with the money. So we couldn't get a raise early out of Mr. Ricky. So Tommy says that he went in to talk to Mr. Ricky about his minor league salary. And after they talked and he agreed to a very, very meager uh, salary, Mr. Ricky said to him, now, Tommy, it's not good for the other teammates to know what uh, each other's making. So why don't we just have a handshake, a gentleman's agreement, that we won't say anything about uh, what you're making uh, to your other teammates. And Tommy said, I looked at Mr. Ricky, and I said, Mr. Ricky, in all due respect uh, for you, you don't have to worry about me saying anything to anybody about this uh, salary I'm making. I'm just ashamed of it as you are. <laughs> and Tom, Tommy said, he shook hands with Mr. Ricky. <laughs> that was Tommy's story. What was it like playing for Mr. Ricky? He was, um, he was, of course, the person who signed Jackie Robinson at that time frame. What was he like? Yeah, he signed me too. About, I think he signed Jackie in a 46, maybe he signed me in 46. Um, Mr. Ricky was a brilliant thinker, uh, and he could have been a high official in government. He could have been a fantastic preacher. Uh, he was a skilled man at understanding other people and understanding young ball players. And he talked to us a lot one-on-one. -on -one. Uh, there were 790 players in the Dodger system uh, at all these low-level minor leagues on up through triple-A, uh, double-A, uh, triple-A. But he often had us on one-on-one -on -one. Uh, helping us understand how to handle pressure. And uh, although he was a strong Christian, uh, he, he, he wove that into his uh, talks with us about how to be calm under pressure. And uh, Mr. Ricky would pick up a baseball and he'd say, uh, now, do you see this, uh, this baseball? The Christian faith is just like the red threads that hold this ball together. It'll, a Christian walk will weave a red thread through your whole life. You'll always feel the presence of your faith if you just remember how the red thread holds this ball together. Well, I'd often stand on the mound <laughs> with the bases loaded. <laughs> I'd, I'd look at that ball and I'd see those red stitches. And it, it kind of gave me a new surge of, of confidence. So Mr. Ricky used his station in life. In fact, he was a founder, uh, one of the founders of the Fellowship of Christian Athletes. And uh, so I had great admiration uh, for Mr. Ricky. He, he was like a second father to the players that he raised. What did it mean to you to be able to use your platform as a sports figure to speak about your religious faith with FCA? Well, you know, uh, it's a very personal thing. And for men, a lot of times, it's hard for them to express uh, their faith. But when I, when I agree to go with this new idea, uh, 
which Don McClannan was a man who actually uh, is his brainchild. And he said, look, just be natural. Um, you, you, you guys endorse uh, razor blades and automobile tires. Uh, you tell how good they are and how much you uh, depend on them. Talk about your faith like that. Uh, tell young people, uh, I try it. Why don't you try it? I'll bet, I'll bet you'll find it's big help for you. So don't try to be somebody or not. Don't try to be preachy or uh, quote scripture. Just, just tell it like it is in your own life. And that's been the foundation of the Fellowship of Christian Athletes. It's still now a worldwide organization. So there are thousands and thousands of coaches, their families, uh, athletes uh, who benefit. It's, it's really an arm of the church. It's not the church, but it's an arm of the church. What are some ways you've seen baseball change throughout your career and after your career and the years since? Well, baseball's prides itself on not having many changes. But in my lifetime, in my baseball career, I saw baseball go from day games to night games, from train games to airplanes, from from radio to television, from uh, segregated to desegregated, from the East Coast to the West Coast. All of that happened in the decade from 47 to 57. Uh, I was part of the team that moved from Brooklyn to Los Angeles. And so uh, all those changes came within uh, those, that 10 or 11 years. Um, today, baseball uh, fundamentally is played much the same. But of course, the biggest difference in baseball is free agency. A player now has a right to play out his options and then go to the highest bidder. Uh, along with that, television has pumped billions of dollars into all sports. And so baseball players make a lot of money today. Uh, we, we did not make the big money, but we did make more than the players who played ahead of us in the early 1900s, 20s, and 30s. So... Uh, yeah, baseball stayed the same while it still had a lot of changes. What do you think about Mike Trout's 12-year, $430 million deal he signed to play with the Angels? <laughs> well, it's hard to imagine that. Um, my biggest salary was $30,000, uh, and, um, and I was proud of that at the time. I think that was the most a Dodger had pitched a pitcher had made uh, in the 1950s. Uh, there's one answer about that uh, big salary. The money is pumped in through television and and other ways that players can, uh, uh, through endorsements and so on. Uh, I have no clue what his contract is like. However, you have to realize there's a lot of performance clauses in, in contracts. And if, if they meet all of those, it could be the big figure they name. But uh, players aren't just, uh, they don't just write a blank check to a player. He has to play so long, play so many innings, get so many hits. There's a lot of performance uh, clauses in those contracts. 
I never had any envy of a player making big money because the pot's big and the player should get a big piece of it. What is one value you think it's important that someone lives throughout their life? Maybe something that um, a parent might teach a child or something that you would recommend someone uh, consider in living their life out. Well, my first day in the big leagues, a pitcher came over to me in the outfield during batting practice. His name was Hugh Casey. He was a big right-handed pitcher. And he said, son, welcome to the big legs. Can I give you some advice? And I said, certainly. He said, well, let me tell you something. There's hitters in this league that hit 340 every year. And I don't know how you pitch. I never saw you throw a baseball, but they're going to hit you just like they hit the rest of us. So my advice is bear down on the weak hitters ahead of the good hitter. Don't let the weak hitters get on base in front of the good hitter. <laughs> Boy, did that save me a lot of games. Bear down on the weak hitters, and the, the good hitters are going to hit you anyway. But there was a second piece of advice. He said there's some things that you can't change in life. So don't worry about the things you have no control over. Worry about the things you do have control of. Be sure you're doing your best with those. So that plays out in any, any place in life. Work on the things that you have control of. Beautiful. You've given us so much to think about and reflect on today. And it's fitting that we were able to do it on Martin Luther King Jr. Remembrance Day and remembering Jackie Robinson and his legacy as well as other players. Uh, we really appreciate you taking the time, Mr. Erskine, to join us today. Well, it's my honor, and I, I wish you well with the foundation. And uh, you represent now uh, to a lot of people one of the best uh, names to ever pitch a baseball, Bob Feller. So it's my honor. Thank you. We really appreciate it. Hello, podcast listeners. We thank you for listening to this episode of the American Valor Podcast with Mr. Carl Erskine. Produced with support from an Angel's Touch publishing company, the publisher of Walk of Heroes, Profiles of Valor. This limited edition book was created in support of the Bob Feller Active Valor Award Foundation, illustrating the 37 National Baseball Hall of Famers who served in the United States military during World War II. These 37 Hall of Famers are part of a group of over 500 Major League Baseball players, including Mr. Carl Erskine, who either put their baseball careers on hold or ended them prematurely in service to their country in a time of great national need. If you would like to learn more about these 37 National Baseball Hall of Famers, simply go to activevaloraward.org and visit shop to order your limited edition book or follow the support the show link in the notes to this podcast. Our next interview will feature Rear Admiral Thorpe. <clears throat> Our next interview will feature Rear Admiral Frank Thorpe. You can follow the Bob Feller Active Valor Foundation on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Active Valor Award. For Tyler Buckholtz and Colin Kirk, my name is Nathaniel Cameron. Thank you for listening to the American Valor Podcast.